Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Amanda Bullock, Director of Public Programs at Literary Arts, in for Andrew Proctor. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. This week, we're celebrating 20 years of the Multnomah County Library's Everybody Reads program. Every year, the library chooses one book that they hope everyone in Multnomah County will read and talk about. The library and their partner organizations host events based around the themes of the book, and they distribute thousands of free copies to readers of all ages across the county, thanks to support from the Library Foundation. Literary Arts has been a proud partner of Everybody Reads for over a decade now, bringing the featured author to Portland to culminate the program with a live event at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall. This year's Everybody Reads selection is Good Talk, a memoir and conversations by Mira Jacob. Written with humor and vulnerability, this deeply relatable graphic memoir is a love letter to the art of conversation and to the hope that hovers in our most difficult questions. I would also add that it's the perfect entry into graphic literature if you're new to the genre. We're looking forward to welcoming Mira Jacob to Portland for a live, in-person event on March 10th, 2022. More info is available at literary-arts.org. This week, we'll join Vailey Elke, who has been director of Multnomah County Library since 2009. Vailey is in conversation with Literary Arts Executive Director Andrew Proctor, and they discuss the inspiration and beginnings of the program at the library, reflect on the role of public libraries as important and unique cultural resources, share favorite moments from past author visits, and go behind the scenes of how the books are selected. We'll also hear from previous Everybody Reads authors, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, author of 2019 selections Americana and We Should All Be Feminists, Portland native Mitchell S. Jackson, author of 2015 selection The Residue Years, and Ross Gay, author of last year's 2021 selection The Book of Delights. Here's Andrew. All right. Well, Bailey, it's delightful to get a chance to sit down and talk with you about Everybody Read, which is a long partnership, our 11th year in partnership, but the program's gone on much longer than that. Um, can you just talk about, like, in its most basic form, what is the program? Um, yeah, what is the program and something about its inception here in Portland and maybe nationally, if you know? Yeah, absolutely. So the notion of a sort of a one community reads one book, you know, we started hearing about it like back in... 2001 or two, and we were really inspired by a program up in Seattle. Nancy Pearl, I don't know if you've heard of her. She's a librarian. The most a librarian. Fam- maybe the most famous Trade librarian. librarian. <laughs> I know. She's always gonna. I will never aspire to Nancy Pearldom. Um, in any case, she started a program at Seattle Public Library called "What If All of Seattle Read the Same Book," and we really like that idea because we're in the process of trying to find a program an adult program akin to something like summer reading. You know, summer reading, our summer reading program has been around for over a hundred years, lots of people engage, um, but it's really targeted at kids and a particular younger kids. And so we wanted something more for adults and um, the then library director and one of my colleagues, Tara Lynn Chun, launched our Everybody Reads program in 2003. 
And um, we wanted a pro part of what attracted us to it. Everybody reads programs this notion of the entire community and granted it's not the entire community, but you know, the, our community collectively reading the same book, you know, having the same sort of maybe conversations, similar conversations together collectively, but with different perspectives, different life experiences, um, in a way that draws the community together. And I can talk a little bit about how books manage to do that. But this is a program now that is 20 years old. It's kind of amazing to think about. Yeah. And um, we're excited to be celebrating 20 years. Yeah. Well, let's talk about, you know, we don't see a lot of the uh, the entire community will look at one painting, right? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which would be cool too, I'm sure. But there is something particularly powerful about books and reading maybe and stories that are different than other art forms. All art forms have their strengths, mm -hmm. right? And their their power. Why is it that these programs, which now are all over the country mm -hmm. and they're here and they're very popular, what is it about reading together that's different, do you think? You know, I, I think it's it has something to do with sort of shared empathy, maybe. And that collectively, when a group of people, even if they're not doing it in the same room, um, across a community are are sharing a book or a story, there's the opportunity to both have a shared experience reading the same story, but also to enrich and enhance that story by virtue of bringing all these different lives and experiences and perspectives to how people talk about that story, how they think about it, what they learn from one another. And you know, unlike standing in front of a painting, which I love to do, that feels sort of time bound in a way, whereas reading can be much more um, expansive, you know, especially when you're talking about a whole bunch of people reading the same book. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting to think about two things you've said now about not about reading, but also about the idea of like people from different perspectives mm -hmm. reading that same work, because I think in the world of the, the arts world, which is the world that we inhabit in a way, we're sort of a funny organization in that regard because we're not a museum, but we have a service element to us, but we're also talking about the arts a lot. So that's interesting. But the library, it seems to me, is much more of a kind of service organization than, than, than arts organizations would be in the sort of strict definitions of those, which means that I think, you've said this to me before, yes, people are checking out latest novel by whoever, but they're also coming in to find a job, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Do you think, seems to me that library is well suited to get those people from different perspectives, something that in the arts world we sometimes struggle mm -hmm. with. Do you, do you think that's true? And does, how does that bear out in the program? What do you, how do you see that playing out? I do think that's true. I think one of, you know, when I talk about public libraries, you know, I obviously I talk about books and people checking out books, you know, how that's just such a fundamental value of public libraries. But I also encourage people to peel away that layer to the, the layer beneath that, which is that, in fact, what's almost more important is that libraries are funded by the community. So everybody has a stake in this institution and they're open to everyone, no matter who you are no matter your resources, no matter your background. Yeah. And that's fairly unique, I think. And, and we can build on that in ways that really benefit the community. And so while, you know, the sort of the genesis of public libraries is around, was around sharing, you know, a collection of books 
and, and in particular sharing this collection of books for people who may not have the means, especially back in its inception right. when buying a book was so expensive, um, was really the, the goal over time, that sort of fundamental value of being both um, you know, supported by the community, but then also available at like no barrier for the entire community is what's really unique about public libraries. And so then you build on that with books, you build on that with providing programs and services that people might not be able to get access to elsewhere, whether it's because they don't have the resources or it's not available in their community. And the library can be much more than checking out books. It can be a place where people can learn how to do a job interview or how to use a particular new type of technology, that sort of thing. Yeah. Well, and you, it feels like you can partially at least escape one of the big challenges we face in this country, which is this idea of identity. So mm. when when a lot of, not, not a lot, but some of our folks who come to like arts experiences in this city identify as someone who likes the arts, right? right? Um, but you don't need that identity to go to the library, right? right? And like, so it feels to me that the identity question is really, you know, it's kind of a wonderful way to sidestep this massive division problem, right? I mean... Yeah, I would agree, Andrew. And in fact, you know, something that just came to mind was um, we have done a variety of programming for people experiencing houselessness in this community. And one of those programs is a poetry writing workshop. And I very vividly remember um, sitting in the community room at Central Library a few years back and um, listening to these people who had taken part in this poetry writing program for the for like six weeks. And then they had this event in which they read their poetry. And these were people, I mean, the poems themselves were so powerful, but these people's life stories that informed that poetry were just um, profound. Yeah. And, you know, those folks, I don't know that they would have had that opportunity via other institutions or organizations. Right. And they were treated with all the respect and dignity that any um, artist would be treated. And, you know, they invited family members or friends, you yeah. know, to, to watch and listen. It was really yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's a really interesting advantage mm -hmm. to serving the community. Let's come back to Everybody Reads. Yeah. Um, uh, you've been doing it a long time. We've been doing it together for 11 years, I think. Maybe we had one year when you were first hired. When we didn't weren't partnered, but then we yep. came on in I think 2011. Mm -hmm. um, but over the whole score of the program, what are your like favorite moments or events um, or speakers or even lines? Like, were there things that really you stuck in your memory? Yeah, you know, I was reflecting on that, and I think a lot of what remains with me over the course of the past since I think I've been involved in this since '09. The programs existed since '03. Um, involves you know, not just the programs that the library does as part of this overall program, um, where the community is really engaged in something related to the story or related to the author, but also things like, you know, when literary arts started partnering with us, which really enriched this program, um, you know, taking the authors to the high schools and hearing those students listen to the author answer their questions. And I, one of the really sort of moving ones was when uh, Matthew Desmond came, you know, his book Evicted. And honestly, I don't remember what high school it was. But in any case, you know, he had this large audience of students in the library there. And I think he asked, 
you know, have any of you had an experience, you know, where your housing wasn't stable? And these kids raised their hands and they talked about that experience. And it was just, it, it made everything that much more real. Right. And um, intimate. And uh, that was, that was pretty amazing. I very vividly remember more recently um, Chimamanda, you know, we were waiting at the high school for her to show up for her talk with the high school and she didn't show and she didn't show and she didn't show. And we understood her to not be not feeling well. And I can remember standing there with you, Andrew, yes. and you were doing that thing you do where you're running around and, <laughs> you know, trying not to appear freaked out when in fact you were, um, Everything turned out just fine, but that was an amusing... Oh, my gosh. Well, and then when she did arrive, she was treated like a rock star. I've never seen sort of almost a level of pushing to get close to her. Yeah. Reading was the abiding love of my childhood. I remember books as physical things, some with covers torn off, spines cracked, others with the stiff and transparent plastic cover from the library. I remember books as mood and place. Reading curled up in bed during heavy rains, reading in the room downstairs that, after my older sisters left home, became the family dumping ground. The sunlight alarmingly bright through the large windows. Reading as I ate at the dining table, the book propped against the tall flask that was filled with hot water for tea. I remember books as consolation, and I remember books as absolute luminous pleasure. I was an early reader and read mostly British children's books. Enid Blyton was a favorite. And because of her books, I came to long for certain things, ginger beer, the circus, picnics. I was also an early writer, and the first stories I wrote were about white people in England who ate apples and talked about the weather, because that was what the characters in the books I read did. (laughs) Even though I could not understand for the life of me what people actually said when they talked about the weather. In my world, the sun was always out, except for when it rained, and then the sun was out again. But I was a child, And like all children, I was vulnerable in the face of a story. And because I had not seen myself reflected in books, I did not think that people like me could be in books. My experience was not unique. It is, in fact, devastatingly ordinary. I have heard similar stories from people who grew up in Kenya and Sri Lanka and Jamaica and India. To be brought up educated in a post-colonial developing country is to encounter books as wonderful and fascinating and enjoyable, but fundamentally foreign. When did my view of literature expand? When did I learn that my stories were worthy of literature? When I discovered other kinds of writing as an older child. Kamaralai's novel, L'Enfant Noir, translated into English as The Dark Child or The African Child, remains one of the most beautiful books I have ever read in its nostalgia and elegy and beauty about a boy growing up in Guinea. Chino Achebe's Arrow of God was a glorious discovery. Here was a book that was delicious page by page, but also a kind of gesture of returned pride. It was a book that said, Don't you dare believe other people's story of you. 
I loved Flora Wapa's books about Igbo women, the way they felt both familiar and not. There was a wonderful young adult African series called The Pace Setters, dramas and romances and thrillers, and in reading them, I discovered the rest of Africa. One, for example, was called Meet Me in Conakry, and for a long time, that West African capital held a certain romance for me because of that book. On the university campus, books drifted in and out of homes, borrowed and returned, creased and torn, passed around. I read everything except for fantasy. The world seemed to me so unknown and unknowable that it felt like an evasion to have to inhabit imaginary worlds while the mysteries of our own world, of human emotion and motivation, were yet to be deciphered. So I just didn't do Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Sorry. I read, I read every Mills and Boone romance that came my way. I read Albert Spears Inside the Third Reich at the age of 10. I read Sidney Sheldon and Robert Ludlum. I read Anna Karenina and Water Babies and The Loss of El Dorado. And like many teenagers in Anglophone West Africa, I read every single book by a writer called James Hadley Chase, whose crime novels had such choice titles as Like a Hole in the Head. <laughs> All of his books were set in America and had their own particular hard-boiled language. I was deflated to learn years later that nobody in America had ever heard of James Hadley Chase. <laughs> I had not, at the time, been indoctrinated into the esteemed cult of literary snobbery. I did not yet know of that spurious distinction between commercial and literary fiction. For me, the distinction was merely books that moved me and books that did not. All true rock stars are a little bit late, I think, in yeah. general, right? I've made, <laughs> yeah. waited for every rock show I've ever yeah, wanted to yeah, see. Yeah, yeah. And then the, the idea that they, uh, that they wanted to get close to her, I mean, I think it's so easy, you know, there's a sort of lazy thought that, like, kids don't read and don't care, yeah. right? And it's just, every time we do this, that never bears out. I mean, yeah. the, the level of excitement in the concert hall, the level of excitement in schools, yeah. we've always seen those students being extremely enthusiastic. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are two great examples of that. One, when Wes Moore went to Roosevelt High School, mm. and at the end of his talk, he said, let's take a photo, and all those kids rushed the stage, and they were all, like, happy, and we have this great photo of Wes Moore in the middle of all these tons of students at Roosevelt High School. And then um, the other instance of that that comes to mind is when Mitchell Jackson went to, mm. I think it was Dolly, was it Dolly Long? Donald Long's yeah, yeah, correctional the, facility. Correction for youth. And, you know, he spoke with those students and we all had to, you know, they were they were incarcerated. And um, they had all read the book. Yeah. You know, and they had and I think the library had actually done some programming with them around the book out there, but it was so it felt like this connection that while it was in a juvenile detention center, you know, sort of wasn't you know like they were able to be in a different place and they were talking with the author of this book in a in a way that i think they probably had never had that opportunity and he had 
that, hey, he shared their lived experience. So I teach, and I always have students bring me papers with marks on them. And they say, Professor, you said here I had subject-verb agreement problem. And Professor, you said here this word was misspelled. And Professor, you said here this is an MLA format. If I fix all these things, will I get an A? And I say, no. Uh, because that's editing. And editing is different from revision. So editing is uh, fixing the small things. It's seeing what's wrong and trying to fix it. Um, editing is fixing the comma splices and the subject verb agreement. And, you know, it's uh, correcting a misspelled word. Um, editing is about minding convention. And if you're minding convention, you're also minding the power, right? Because someone creates those conventions. So editing is also minding convention. Um, editing is also uh, fixing the things that are static, right? So when you look at a paper and you're editing, you're looking at the work as static. But revision, that's something else. Revision is to re Envision. Revision is to re-envision. Revision is a philosophy. Revision is seeing the work as a whole. Revision is seeing one part and moving it to the other part. Revision is seeing the work in progress. Revision is seeing the work in context. If you revise, you see what's right, and you try to make it more right. That's revision. Um, some of my homeboys, I got the chance to revise, and thank God that I learned about revision for my writing. And thank God, the angels, the saints, whoever else, that I got a chance to revise my life. But I've had friends, a handful of friends, who never got the opportunity to revise. And one of those guys, his name was Kevin. This is Kevin's headline. This ran in the Oregonian. The headline, I'll read it for you. It says, second gang member dies at apartment 43. That was my homeboy, Kev. Uh, I, this is Kevin's uh, girlfriend. He, she, he also had a, a, new, a new child when he died. And that's her. Um, so Kevin, me and Kevin met each other at, uh, at Benson. Any tech men in here? Any tech men in here? Yeah. Yeah, tech men. Uh, we met in, um, at Daily Doubles on the freshman football team. It was my one year of playing football. We were undefeated, too. I just want to mention that to y'all real quick. <laughs> I don't even know what the records are, but we must have been one of the only undefeated teams uh, but Kev, he was kind of stocky, and y'all can see now I'm still kind of a slim dude. I was like, if you didn't have an anchor on me, I would have blew away in a rainstorm when I was a freshman. Um, but Kev, what I remember about my early memories of Kevin is that he was never scared to go heads up. We had this drill where you had to pop up and, like, block against the other person and heads up. And Kev, he was, like, strong, and he, he wasn't afraid for, for heads up. I didn't want to do heads up. I was like... Let me do the catching drills, please, something. I don't want to do the heads-up drill, but Kev, he was. And 
The other thing I remember about Kevin is he was really smart. Now, Kevin was Asian, so this is almost cliche, but he was a really smart guy. But because he was around us, I think that he played down how smart he was. Um, And the other thing that I remember about Kevin is he used to wear classic gang attire to, to school. He would have like Chuck Taylors or Cortez. He would have some dicky pants on. He'd have a dicky shirt on. He'd have a hat. And you know how they used to wear the hat? Where they, it's actually back now. No bend in the brim. It's just like right here, just a straight. That was Kevin. But while other dudes like were really seemed like they were announcing their philosophy about life, Kevin seemed like he was playing dress up. Yeah. So uh, a couple of months before this, that was my first memory of Kevin. That's when we were freshmen. He was the smart guy. He wore the, the dickies and the other, the other gang attire. But he was a good guy. So um, the last time that I saw Kevin was, um, I think I was about to graduate from high school. And somehow I got my hands on some really bad weed. It was probably like, it was a bag of, I don't even know how much it was, but it, it didn't even look good. It looked like brown dust. But... I was downstairs in my room. I ain't going to tell y'all where it was. Okay, I'm going to tell y'all. I was at my grandfather's house. Dad, <laughs> please. Dad, it's like 25 years ago, okay? Just be cool, be cool. So, so <laughs> I was in my grandfather's basement showing Kev that we get, check this out, Kev. Check it out. And my grandmother came downstairs. It was like slow motion. <sighs> And I looked at the weed, and Kev looked at the weed, and I couldn't pick it up. So my grandmother was like, what is this? And Kevin, without thinking, he said, Mrs. Jackson, that's mine. I mean, like, before I was still panicking, like, what are we going to do? Kevin immediately, Mrs. Jackson, that's mine. You know what Mrs. Jackson said, get that, get out of my house, don't you ever come back, right? This was about months before Kevin was killed. So we didn't have to worry about whether or not Kevin came back. So I would like to offer, if I could speak to Kevin, I would like to offer him revision, right? It's a philosophy. This is what I would like to offer Kevin. This idea, your wound is your bow. So when I first started writing, I um, didn't really, I was scared to talk about my life in an honest way. I was scared that people would judge me. Um, I was cool about kind of giving you the information. Like, I tell you that I sold drugs. I tell you that, you know, some other things. But I didn't really want to talk about the emotional and psychic harm that that would cause me. So in essence, I wasn't really writing. And it took me a really long time to come around to the idea that I had to go there, that I had to expose my wound to people in order for me to have that strength. And so if I could talk to Kevin, I would say, Kev, look, you're smart. You're a kind guy. And I understand that it's not really cool amongst us for you to be the smartest person in the room. But Kevin, that is your bow, right? I would say, Kevin, 
You don't have to play that down. Kev, your wound is your bow. It leads us into a question about choosing authors mm -hmm. and how we relate to those authors, right? Because those students, you know, we were to, I don't know, bring in a different writer. I'm not sure that would have been the same experience, exactly. right? I think yeah. so. And, and it, it's got to be a really delicate process because choosing a book for like mm -hmm. I an mean, entire community, <laughs> yeah, a lot of lived experiences yeah, in yeah. this community, you know, right. What does that look like for you? Yeah. You know, it's funny because people always ask me about selecting the title and they ask me who's the next author I want to see when in truth, and you know this, Andrew, the way I tend to approach it and the way I ask my staff to approach it is what is what is the something this community is thinking about or, or that feels like uh, a conversation this community ought to or might wish to have? And, um, you know, acknowledging that books are such a great vehicle for both generating those conversations and enriching them in a way that isn't um, threatening or potentially confrontational, right? And so you can take topics that are difficult and for which there are many different perspectives and encourage people to come to that from all of their various realities um, collectively to talk things through or to share their experience and learn more about something they've not experienced. And I think, you know, so over the years, you know, I was <laughs> kind of chuckling the other day um, when Evicted, it was such a great example because that was when... The Matthew Desmond yeah, book. The Matthew, thank you. The Matthew Desmond book around, um, you know, housing insecurity and the cost of housing and the instability of being unhoused. And that was the homelessness was such a huge issue for Portland. And it was, you know, something we were really struggling with as a community across the county. And so it seemed like such a great and resonant topic. Um, and now, you know, fast forward to now when that issue is even bigger and more complex and more difficult and the impact is even greater than back then. And I, I'm really happy that we selected that book at that time. Um, and similarly, other topics that, you know, the Book of Delights by Ross Gay, that was, a, you know, one year plus into the pandemic and everyone was exhausted. You know, if they weren't exhausted, they were super afraid right. <laughs> and um, or depressed, you know, and uh, the Book of Delights was this, it generated this, this, this moment, right, where you got to just be uh, happy, you know, and where everyone was sort of, I can't tell you how many people wrote or stopped me and said that was the perfect mm. book for now. Yeah. Because everyone was tired of talking about the pandemic, its impact on their lives, and they just needed a, a, someone to like clear the deck for a moment and let them focus on something else that was actually you know, generated delight and yeah. happiness. And that's what that book and that author did. I was recently sitting in a field in a cemetery under a sycamore tree with some friends, one of whom told us that his father used to play John Coltrane's My Favorite Things every morning, like every single morning, which feels like a good way to bless the day. When I asked which version his dad played, because in addition to the studio version, there are plenty of live versions out there, some that go on so very long, they might still be going on as we speak. He reported that his father always played the one from the studio recording, the record. I think I can picture the cover. 
blue background, Coltrane with his soprano in a suit looking down. I just looked up the image. I was right. That's the one. I was picturing him looking a bit more straight down, less to his right, but, you know, pretty close. Anyhow, when he said he only played the studio version, which is beautiful, a complete liberation of the Rodgers and Hammerstein song, <laughs> if it's Rodgers and Hammerstein, <laughs> which I just barely know, I was doing that for effect. Though it's a safe bet my time on this earth will pass without me seeing that movie. Oh, too, I think Bjork's version from Dance in the Dark is also amazing, as is most of what Bjork does. I asked him if he had ever heard any of the live versions, which he had not. Well, if you know anything about a live Coltrane version, though maybe the knowing is actually of any Coltrane, though live is certainly more, which makes sense, given as the living itself is more and the dying itself is more, you know that digression is one of his modes. You know that he will go as far on a theme as the theme permits, and then some, until you completely forgot the song you were listening to. You forgot the catchy melody that reminds you of something, maybe some sweet or not so sweet family moment, maybe some holiday this or that, maybe it's cranberry sauce or your grandparents' dog jester or your grandfather's aftershave until all of that gets left behind, far behind and you are being reminded of almost nothing, or at least nothing you can recognize being reminded of. You are suddenly in a place. I guess it's a song you do not recognize and don't know how you got here, or if you'll ever get out. And I think I probably first started to listening to Coltrane when I was about 13 or 14. I wonder if this is right. It could have been 15 or 16. It might've been the same friend Cootie who shared a tape. It was still tapes then. Maybe it was one of his brothers, or maybe I shared it with him. Sharing was involved, we can say that for sure. Could have been a logical progression backward in time from Branford Marsalis's record, Renaissance. Oh, do you know that song, The Peacocks? Wait, how did I come to Branford? Was it Do the Right Thing? The more you get to know me, the more you will know I am what they call a melancholic, which conditions sometimes for some, might occasion the writing of something like the Book of Delights, melancholic, etc. I mean. But I want to keep following this thread because at a certain point, coinciding, I think, with the emergence of my father's and my struggles, I became very interested in my old man's record collection. The word is not obsessed, though that would make for a good origin story. It would be good on the terrible TV show. Son becomes obsessed with father's record collection at the same time son becomes unenamored of father. Listening, understanding, reconciliation, etc. That's not this story. I became very interested in some of the records in my father's record collection, which collection had, among oh, 500 other records, a Japanese pressing of a Simon and Garfunkel double album, I think, that included the song Old Friends which I loved, told you I was melancholic. Good Lord. They sat on the park bench like bookends. A newspaper blew through the grass. Da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Quietly sharing the same fears. Good Lord. All the hits too. Truth is, I was just on a YouTube jag of live Simon and Garfunkel the other day. But more, I wanted to tell you the three other records of my father's that I listened to over and over and over. The first is Al Jarreau's rendition of the Dave Brubeck song, Blue Rondo a la Turk. 
Now, I understand that among some people, you might tease someone a little bit by saying they were dressed like Al Jarreau. I suspect it might, in a certain era, have meant you were wearing pastels or loafers without socks or a well-fitting polo shirt, all of which, for a time, were profoundly out of vogue, all of which, for a time, were profoundly in Miami Vice. Anyway, say what you will about Jarreau's polo shirts. Dude could sing his ass off. To me, look, full disclosure, I am not a Thoreau scholar. Nowhere more on display than in Blue Rondo a la Turk, the two minute or so solo of which I could sing to you right now. I mean, I could try singing it to you right now. There would be times where I'd be pointing at the notes like they were impossible birds high up in a tree, which is a kind of conducting, isn't it? A kind of conduction between my body and the birds, my body and Giroux, my body as Giroux and the birds. I can remember listening to this record as my mom and dad watched TV, sort of over my shoulder. I'd be sitting in front of the record player following the lyrics. It's nearly a five minute song. And when it finished, I'd listen again. And when it finished, I'd listen again, and then again, and then again. And one time when they were watching TV as I was hunkered down in front of the record player, following along, probably listening to one song over and over, I heard my dad say through those headphones to my mother, well, at least he's reading something, which is, I think, as good a place as any to tell you, I didn't like to read very much after a certain age, more or less after Clifford, and Frog and Toad in them. Oh, I guess those choose your own adventure books were fun for a spell, but for the most part, by the time I was 12 or so, I mostly lost the taste. I think the late stages of my early reading life were late Power Man and Iron Fist. I would mainly procure them at I-95 Marketplace, where there was a comic book shop across the way from the arcade and Chinese spot. Anyhow, it was just after this time that, as I often put it, jokingly, I got dumb, by which I actually mean I ceased being interested in school, classes and lessons and such. I became, in classes not gym anyway, by all accounts, including my report cards, a distracted goofball. I set no fires and poisoned no fish. I was just profoundly disinterested in class. Though the older I get, the longer I teach, the more I think, oh, the ways you were disinterested your particular distracted goofballery was itself a kind of interest. You know, there's something about those virtual events. Like I obviously love to be in the concert hall and like like the idea that one of the it's the big one of the biggest houses yeah. for literature, right? And yeah. that we're very proud of that. But there's something about the intimacy of those virtual events. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I'm not necessarily gonna miss them, but there was something we did get from them, which was, you know, Ross Gay was like leaning into the camera and you could see his face and his features and you could see him think. And there was something kind of beautiful about yeah. seeing it that way, I yeah. thought. I agree. And I think from, an, from a sort of an audience perspective, I like to think about people being like in their living room, eating their <laughs> yeah, dinner right. while they're listening to that's watching right. Ross Gay right. or, you know, having an experience that's markedly different than sitting in a, no offense, but a sort of uncomfortable seat right, right, right. <laughs> at the schnitzer. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, you know, listening to an author, I, I think both of those things have their benefits and yeah, their moments. For sure. Yeah. Uh, one, I, I want to talk about one of the craziest everybody reads we ever did, which was when we had Justice Sotomayor oh, yeah. from the Supreme yeah. Court. Yeah. And um, it was so popular yeah. that uh, 
that we actually had to beam a signal to the museum to give free seats in the Crydell, I think it was the Crydell Ballroom, because we sold out the concert hall in like, I don't know, a couple of weeks. Um, and then we had to deal with Secret Service. <laughs> and she was trying, like she was sick of their like, being bossy and telling her what to do. So she was like giving them the slip once in a while, which would then freak everybody out and they would go scramble looking for her. And at one point she left the building and didn't tell them because she wanted to go over and address the folks at the art museum. And they were asking me where she was. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's your job. <laughs> right? I'm sure you handled all of that very calmly. Andrew. Yeah, I, was, I, I had to sleep for a week after that. It was just exhausting. Um, but she gave a really wonderful talk and oh, it was a yeah. really, really, what an honor to host her. And she, you know, one of she was another one that I'll never forget, partly because just to her her stature and who she is, but she was simultaneously so down to earth yeah. and so accessible, you know, and the little the little reception after her talk at at uh at the Heathman at, Hotel. At, yeah. Yeah. I mean, people she was taking photos with everyone. She was talking to people. Yeah, I mean, she was incredibly accessible and I actually a couple of weeks after that event i got a handwritten letter from her yeah at home at my yeah i mean it's just like how does that happen and how does she even have time right and even remember that she did that for goodness sake you right. know yeah, yeah 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 i remember that reception well because she was in it was like almost a rugby crush at yeah. one point and i asked the security guys like what do we do and they're like she always does this they were just like over it almost yeah. you know what I mean? <laughs> like all right <laughs> Yeah, she was pretty amazing <laughs> yeah. for many reasons. But I think the part that will always stick with me was just how she seemed like a regular person. Yeah, for sure. And I really respect that. Yeah. yeah. So, Bailey, the program is the library's program, but it works on a whole series of partnerships. Some are really super local and community-driven. Some change year to year. Some are consistent across the years. Can you talk about the way the program's kind of constructed. Yeah, and I think what you described is 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 on point. You know, at its inception, this was a, the library out on its own trying to create a, a community reads program targeting adults. Um, and then when, frankly, when you and I came into our jobs, uh, almost immediately, it was clear that partnering with Literary Arts would really enhance that program. We have been lucky over the years that we've also, you know, the library's foundation has been a, an important partner in terms of being able to purchase a bunch of books that we can make available to the community as part of the project. So that's another important project. And then all of the programming that surrounds the Everybody Reads project is absolutely dependent on partners in the community, PSU and um, schools and local artists and um, cultural organizations and that kind of thing. So it really is, in addition to a community reads program, it's a community partnership program. And I've always been very grateful for those kinds of um, partners, you know, over the course of this project. I mean, it really is an example of the sum being greater than the parts. Absolutely. Right? Definitely. I mean, it really, it's, it's an incredible model. And we're all grateful to be part of it. Yeah, for sure. yeah. definitely. So Mira Jacob. Yeah. This year's Everybody Reads yep. author. Um, talk about Mira Jacob and the choice for good talk. Yeah. So this is a title that, um, you know, I, I had been getting, now pressure's too strong a word. I had been <laughs> encouraged for several years by um 
some of my library colleagues to consider a graphic novel. And it wasn't that I was opposed, but I just, that is not a, a format that I'm very familiar with. And so I, you know, I just wasn't something I felt confident in selecting. And then my, it was my, um, my library folks, along with, I think, some of the literary arts folks who suggested this title, and it just seemed perfect. Um, not just because of its format, we'd never done, we've never done a graphic novel before, but because of how it uh, covered the, um, the topics it covered in a way, again, that was accessible, um, but also kind of profound. And, you know, I found myself laughing in that book and feeling so sad and badly for some of her experiences or family's experiences. And um, I think it's, again, a, a good book for the time. Yeah. yeah. And you're, you're using the term graphic novel because I know what you mean, but it's it's actually a memoir. Yes, thank you right? very much. It is so, a memoir. Thank so, you I mean, we use the term graphic novel yeah. all the time because yeah. that's just the format. So I just, yeah. but but it's it's a memoir. So that's also kind of interesting, right? And the fact that, like, I had never really thought about mm -hmm. graphic novels mm -hmm. being other than, than graphic novels, right? Mm -hmm. That's a term we just pair right. together. Um, so it's unusual in that regard. Do you think, how did you find it reading it? I think I know the answer to this question, but talk about how you accessed it. And was that new for you? Do you read a lot of graphic literature? What should the, how should the community think and feel about approaching a, a book like this? Yeah, I think often, especially for people of my generation, you know, graphic literature um, has been considered sort of fluffy or not serious literature. Right. And certainly... You know, because what I knew of graphic literature was, you know, comics. And comics are, you know, escapist and fun and whatever. Um, and uh, it's interesting because, well, when I started uh, Good Talk, it was clear, you know, it was, it was a graphic memoir because it's all illustrated and the, you know, conversation bubbles. <laughs> yeah. But I realized after not too long that I, that wasn't front and center for me as I was reading the book. What was what I was reading? I was in, ensconced in the the story that she was telling, and the comics, the drawings weren't distracting me. You mm. know, it was, and I think that was what was interesting to me. Not that I didn't see and pour over the illustrations. Um, it was it was every bit reading a book as as it would have been if it was just t plain text on a page yeah well i think one of the one of the opportunities in this selection aside from not aside from in addition to like the profound work yeah. that, that we've that you've chosen but also that there is this incredible comics and graphic yeah. artist community yep. here in portland and yep. of course nationally and there's a lot of incredible work being made and if we can open the door for more people to access access that work, Absolutely. that would be really exciting too. Yeah, I think about my 16-year-old stepson who, you know, that book is much more accessible to him and he's much more inclined to read something like that than, you know, a big, thick, text-only yep. um, novel or memoir. And and I think that's a good thing, mm -hmm. you know, and that's something the library has said for a long time, you know, even though I personally wasn't someone who read a lot of graphic literature, you know, reading is reading. You know, and what's important is that you're reading, whether it's a comic book, a graphic novel, an audio book, um, or uh, War and Peace. So. Well, so if you were to look into the future, you, you had said choosing books is a bit about 
what is the community thinking and feeling, yeah. right? Or trying to divine that, which is not easy. And mm-hmm. of course, we're all thinking and feeling different things, but also have do have some shared kind of feelings mm-hmm. about where we are, what we're thinking about. What do you think, you don't have to, I'm sure you haven't chosen the book yet, but what do you think, what are you thinking about for future programs? What's on your mind? Yeah, well, you know, Obviously, the pandemic is on everybody's mind, but years ago, we did a book called Ghost Map that was about a huge cholera outbreak in Mm. London in the 1900s, so I think we've covered that enough. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I think there are issues around uh, the environment and sustainability and the climate crisis that we haven't really, we haven't picked up, and that is a lot on people's minds in this community. I think finding something around that would be really great. Um, You know, I don't think we can talk enough as a community about issues related to race and racism. Um, We've certainly, that has been a topic in many of our titles. In fact, every every author but three on the list of books that we've selected have been uh, authors of color over the years because we've felt really strongly about the need to raise up those authors and their works. Um, And often those topics are around race or um, the like. So, you know, I would love to see something related to climate crisis and the environment soon, if not this coming year. Uh, We'll see. I, you know, I give that to my folks and I've really, as I've, as I've gotten further into this job, I've had to choose where I'm going to really have control or think <laughs> yeah. I have control. Yeah. And sure. uh, I, I have, we have great folks working on this program between, you know, the literary arts staff and library staff who are able to really, you know, think through what would be the best selection. And I have confidence that they'll do that again this next year. Well, I think everyone it looks forward to hearing the announcement. In the meantime, thanks for coming down yeah. to the literary arts and spending a little time with us and talking about the program. My really pleasure. Yeah. And thanks to you. That was Vailey Elke and Andrew Proctor in conversation about the Multnomah County Library's Everybody Reads program. We also heard from previous Everybody Reads authors Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, Ross Gay, and Mitchell S. Jackson. This year's Everybody Reads selection is Good Talk, a graphic memoir by Mira Jacob. Literary Arts is partnering with the library to present Mira Jacob at the Arlene Schnitzer Concert Hall on March 10, 2022. More info at literary-arts.org. This has been Literary Arts, The Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our executive producer is Andrew Proctor. The show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Jyoti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Amanda Bullock, in for Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.